Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week of this podcast is either an interview with a guest or multiple guests or a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship in relation to computer science education. In this week's episode, I'm unpacking a section of a chapter titled Images of Curriculum. And this chapter is from a book titled Curriculum, Perspective, Paradigm, and Possibility. And it was written by William H. Schubert. And if I had to summarize this section of a chapter into a single sentence, I'd say that this excerpt describes different examples, intents, and criticisms of images images or characterizations of curriculum. Now, this is a little continuation of some discussion on curriculum. So two weeks ago, I released an episode where I talked about integration as it relates to curriculum. And two weeks before that, I specifically discussed a paper that I wrote on the integration or intersections of music and computer science. So just as there are many different ways that you can conceive of integrating curriculum, there are also many different ways that you can conceive of curriculum. And the next Unpacking Scholarship episode, I'll kind of dive into some of the more subtle ways to think of curriculum in terms of what is taught, what is learned, implicit things that are learned, hidden things that are learned, all sorts of interesting stuff, in my nerdy opinion. As always, there are show notes that you can find by clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on, or you can visit jaredoleary.com. There are links to hundreds, if not thousands, of free computer science education resources, as well as a bunch of gaming and drumming stuff, because I create a lot of content for work and for leisure. Speaking of work, this podcast is powered by BootUp, which is the nonprofit that I work for, and you can learn more about the free curriculum that I create or the professional development by clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on, or by simply going to bootuppd.org. So on page 26 of this particular chapter, here's a quote that kind of describes, well, what are images or characterizations? Quote, I use the terms image and characterization rather than definition because they denote a broader conceptualization than the label for a thing. To make curriculum an object reduces its richness and rules out presentation of certain key conceptualizations that are essential to an understanding of the field." End quote. Now, the way that the author presents these different images or characterizations is in dialogue. So they provide a description of the intent and some criticisms. And they do this for every one of them. So they're not trying to say, hey, this is the one right way to do it and all these other ways are the wrong way. But their intent is to position many different ways of viewing or conceiving of curricula for different purposes. Just like there are many different visions or rationales, for computer science education, and I'll include some links to some podcasts that talk about that in the show notes. And just as there are many different ways that you can integrate, which I talked about in the episode two weeks ago, there are also many different ways of conceiving of or creating curriculum. And I say this as somebody who's done that professionally for the past few years. The design for the curriculum that I create that is 100% free at boot up has influences and alignment with different ways of viewing curriculum that differ from other organizations that also create computer science curriculum. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit in each one of them. So here's a very quick overview of each one of the different images or characterizations. So one way of viewing things is as curriculum as content or subject matter. Another one is curriculum as a program of planned activities. Another one is curriculum as intended learning outcomes. Next one is curriculum as cultural reproduction. Next one is curriculum as experience. Then we have curriculum as discrete tasks and concepts, a curriculum as an agenda for social reconstruction, and a curriculum as curare. Now, when you're listening to each one of these different images or characterizations, I want you to think of whether or not you have experienced or even taught one of these kinds of curriculum. And again, there's no judgment on them. Some of them are great for some purposes and not so great for other purposes. And that's okay. I think that's a good thing, especially for CS education. We need to have many different perspectives at the table and many different approaches to creating curriculum and content. Okay, so let's dive into the first one, curriculum as content or subject area. So this is when the curriculum is the subjects that are being taught. So when you hear the words curriculum night, which is popular in some 
parts of the world. You might think of an event where maybe some parents, guardians, community members can come in and speak with teachers and learn more about different subject areas. So you'll go in there and learn about, well, what are they gonna learn in art class or in music class or in ELA or whatever. The curriculum is whatever content or subject is being taught. So this is a very broad view of what you might conceive of as curriculum. So here's a quote from page 26, quote, Educators who use this image intend to explicate clearly the network of subjects taught, interpretations given to those subjects, prerequisite knowledge for studying certain subjects, and a rationale for the ways in which all subjects at a particular level of school fit together and provide what is needed at that level, end quote. So if we were to think of a computer science curriculum at a school that has multiple offerings, you might say, in this class, we learn ethics around computing. In this other class, we learn cybersecurity. In this class, we learn app development or game development or whatever. And so each one of those is conceived of as their own curriculum. Now, a criticism that Schubert provides is that this focus on subject areas can often focus so much on the knowledge acquisition that it does not account for cognitive development, creative expression, personal growth, community engagement, social development, etc. Like all these different things that can also be a part of a learning experience. And the author argues that these things are essential for us to consider in education. Not only should we think about what we intend for the curriculum, but also what is unintentionally learned or taught. And I'll talk more about that in the next Unbacking Scholarship episode. So the next image or characterization, curriculum as a program of planned activities. So this kind of an approach will typically have a scope and sequence, some kind of a balance among the subject areas, or the concepts or standards, maybe some techniques or some motivational devices, and anything else that can be planned in advance. So one way you might view the curriculum that I create for Boot Up is it's a program of planned activities. That is a way that you could go through it. it. Does include a lot of different projects that you can create. It does have a sequence from simple to complex. There's a lot of motivational devices built into it. There's a lot of teaching techniques embedded throughout etc, etc. So that is a way that you can conceive of the content that I create. However, Schubert goes on to say that a program of planned activities can include both a written document, like the free content in the curriculum that I create, or it could be any kind of a plan that could even be unwritten. So while the written plans might be the lesson plans and the curriculum guides, Schubert argues that there are many other plans that you can make that are not necessarily written. And he also points out that while the written down guides and textbooks and sequences, etc., can be helpful, they are better when they are resources to use rather than as mandates. And that is something that really resonates with me because one of the districts that I used to work in back when I taught general music of band is they had a curriculum that you had to follow. And if you weren't teaching a specific lesson on a specific day across all of the elementary schools in the entire district, you would get written up. So rather than using the curriculum as a resource, it was a mandate. And you'd have, at least for me, one of five different administrators who'd come in randomly, unannounced, and check to make sure if you were teaching a specific lesson on a specific day, among other things. Which is interesting because, like, if you were to go up to most high school band directors and ask them to show you, like, hey, what lesson plan do you have for the ensemble that you're about to work with? And they'll probably laugh at you because most band directors do not have a lesson plan. They'll have a list of things to work through and then a lot of stuff is gonna come up in the moment and they'll be responsive and work through things in the moment. So what Schubert indicates is that there's a lot more planning that goes on that's not necessarily written down. And I'd argue some of those plans can be improvised on the fly. So here's a quote from page 28, quote, Teachers will sometimes get bright ideas on the spur of the moment, or will have to change plans in midstream because of altered circumstances, an unannounced assembly, student lack of responsiveness, unavailable equipment. Teachers may do a great deal of planning while driving to and from work, or when pondering the next day just before falling asleep at night. 
These and similar activities are all plans, yet they may never be written, end quote. And then Schubert goes on to clarify that the intent of this kind of approach is that, quote, all these plans have purposes for which the activities are the vehicle, yet it is the activity, what students do, that is the curriculum, end quote. Now, here's an interesting criticism that Schubert provides, quote, to characterize curriculum as planned activities is to place major emphasis on outward appearance rather than inner development. It values outcomes and neglects the learning process. Emphasis on activities implies that more careful attention should be given to ends than means. For example, many teachers in school districts are so intent on seeing that certain activities are implemented, the activities become the ends in themselves. There's a tendency to lose sight of purposes that the activities serve, such as their impact on the learning process or personal meaning. Attention to pre-specified activities obscures consequences that cannot be readily anticipated. For example, 20 children who engage in the same creative writing activity have 20 quite different responses. Thus, it may be more sensible to focus on what each student experiences than on the planned activity itself, end quote. Okay, so yeah, it's great that you're thinking from simple to complex, scaffolding in things, maybe using like a Brunerian approach where you cycle back down, spiral down into the concepts and practices, building off of the prior knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But the focus can be so much on the design and the activities themselves, not necessarily the focus on the inner development. That is a criticism of that approach. But again, there's a lot of positives to it. And another criticism is that it's focusing on a sequence for a group to go through, generally speaking, rather than a sequence for an individual to co-construct together. So that could be another criticism. But again, there's positive approaches to this. I'm not saying you should never do this. But another approach, the curriculum as intended learning outcomes, shifts the focus specifically on to what is intended to be learned. So it shifts from the means to the ends. And then here's an interesting clarifying quote from page 28 to 29. Quote, intended learning outcomes are not precisely equated with curriculum. Rather, curriculum is the realm of intentionality that fosters the intended learning outcomes, end quote. So while you might have an intended learning outcome, the curriculum itself is not what is intended to be learned. It's just kind of like the medium through which that you learn the intended outcomes. And Schubert describes the intent as being explicit and defensible in terms of what is offered to students. However, as with all of these, a criticism is that, quote, focus on intended learning outcomes as the prime factor in curriculum draws attention away from the unintended outcomes, which many claim are an exceedingly powerful force in what students learn in schools. These are outcomes of the culture of schooling or hidden curriculum. While all the students in a class may demonstrate that they have acquired the intended learning outcome, the consequences of its acquisition may be quite different from one student to another. Knowledge that helps one student when it combines with the rest of his or her cognitive and effective repertoire may be enlightening, while the same intended learning outcome may indeed be harmful to another student. Less harmful, but still quite powerful, is the impact that differing organizational environments and institutional strategies can have on an outcome. The same intended outcome may become quite different when taught by an inquiry, simulation, and lecture method. The central point here is that intended results may be very different from actual ones, even within a group of students who seem to have acquired the intended outcomes, end quote. It's from page 29. So again, the next Unpacking Scholarship episode, we'll talk about like some of these terms that are used like hidden curriculum, intended curriculum, taught curriculum, etc. So stay tuned. It's really important for us to consider how different perspectives or approaches, pedagogies, or even content can have a profoundly different impact on different people. While one pedagogical approach might work great for a specific student or group of students, that same approach 
might not work very well for another, which again is why I'm a huge fan of multi-perspectivalist approaches and not buying into a specific method or idea. So check out the podcast that I did on methodolatry. I'll include a link to that in the show notes by Rigelski. If you haven't listened to that one, I highly recommend it. Now, if you want a more explicit example of how learning a concept and using the same approach for the same group of students might be enlightening for some and might be harmful for others, think about various forms of oppression that have gone on in the United States, whether it be towards people of color, indigenous, native, First American, First Nation, etc., cultures across the Americas. Think about how learning about those different histories and the way that people in the government treated entire groups of people for many years how that might have a profoundly different impact on white kids versus people from within those different cultures. And speaking of cultures, the next section on here is talking about curriculum as cultural reproduction. So some people think that curriculum should reflect what is valued in society or a particular culture. So think of like civic skills or concepts that some people think should be taught or explicated in schools. Here's a quote from page 29 that kind of elaborates on that. Quote, the job of schooling is to reproduce salient knowledge and values for the succeeding generation. The community, state, or nation take the lead in identifying the skills, knowledge, and appreciations to be taught. It is the job of professional educators to see that they are transformed into a curriculum that can be delivered to children and youth, end quote, from page 29. So an intent behind this is that, okay, well, it's impossible for every parent to be able to teach their kids adequately on their own. It's har hardly enough time to do it not enough knowledge in different subject areas, abilities, etc., or not a desire to want to homeschool. So they need institutions to help reproduce different cultural knowledges and values for their kids, which is one of the reasons why some private schools exist, because they are very explicit about this is the set of values that we hold. And so parents, families, guardians will send their kids to these schools in order to have those values taught to them explicitly and reinforced in different social settings. However, a critique of this is that this view can perpetuate some forms of oppression. So if you haven't listened to the Paulo Freire episodes that I've done in the past, it's a four-part series. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But the critique is that we should be critical of cultural values and norms in society. Just because a behavior or a belief was valued in the past, that it does not mean it's not problematic. And Schubert argues that some teachers might consider themselves to be powerless. However, Schubert points out that schools are a part of institutions and society that can exert some forces on the communities that they serve. And I think this is one of the big debates about whether or not we should have critical race theory in the classroom is the debate of whether or not curriculum should be cultural reproduction. So I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But the next one I wanna talk about is curriculum as experience. So this is a very John Dewey approach to curriculum. So it's a means and continuum in terms of you'll learn through the experience. And the thing that binds this continuum together is experience itself. So here's a quote from page 30, quote, the teacher is a facilitator of personal growth and the curriculum is the process of experiencing the sense of meaning and direction that ensues from teacher and student dialogue, end quote. So while the curriculum as experience approach might have some activities or projects or things within it, it can be done in dialogue with students rather than done for or designed for students. And another key distinction is that that's not the main purpose of it. The point is to have an experience, we're able to learn, grow, express, etc. not necessarily go through a sequence of events or concepts. So here's a quote from page 30 and 31, quote, 
Curriculum as actual learning experiences is an attempt to grasp what is learned rather than to take for granted that the planned intents are in fact learned. Experiences are created as learners reflect on the processes in which they engage. Curriculum is meaning experienced by students, not facts to be memorized or behaviors to be demonstrated. While ideals are indeed indispensable in giving direction to action, they are fashioned as teachers and learners interact amid a milieu and with subject matter that gives substance to learning, end quote. So then Schubert goes on to say that there are four different commonplaces in terms of curriculum as experience. So this was a teacher, a learner, a subject matter, and milieu, which is like context, social context. So we need to look at the different intersections and engagements that go on between those four different areas. So it's not just about what the teacher is doing or what the, about the learner is learning, but it's also how the two interact with each other through dialogue, but the how the two interact with each other in dialogue is also with dialogue with the subject matter and then in social context. So how are you communicating with your parents about this? How are you communicating with other peers in your class or in the school about this? All of these different four factors work together to kind of create this gestalt or this entirety of, well, what is a, an experience? or what is a curriculum as an experience. Now, because of the four things that are all kind of working together, this is very hard to research. So this is where the criticism gets into. So while it sounds great and wonderful, it's impossible to really account for, both in terms of as an educator, facilitator, or designer, or curriculum developer, but it's also hard to research, to really figure out, well, how do these all intersect? What is going on with the teacher? What is going on with the students? So like, there's a tendency among many education scholars who are doing research on a curriculum to look at the curriculum itself and just the outcomes from students, but they don't necessarily look at, well, how did the teacher teach it compared to a different teacher? How was the social environment of that particular class compared to another social environment or milieu? How are each of the students as individuals different from peers in their class and different from other populations in different parts of the world or country or community or whatever? It's really hard to do research on all these things. So there's a tendency to have this reductionist or simplistic approach in education research where we focus on just one of these aspects, just whatever the teacher is doing, or whatever the learner is reportedly learning, or whatever the subject matter is, or whatever the social context is. But it's how all of these intersect that we really have to look at it. And if you're a teacher who's doing this with, let's say, 30 kids in your class, or let's say, like I was, with a few hundred kids in your school, how are you going to explore that intersection with every single learner that you're working with? That is very hard to do, unless you take an approach that allows you to engage in dialogue with students and encourages them to come up with their own paths that they can forge or follow and deviate from in their own learning. And I've talked about this with John Stapleton, Katie Henry, and Catherine Bornhorst in our discussion on rhizomatic learning, so I highly recommend looking at that and then checking out the episodes with Katie and John. We talk about that in those podcasts as well. I'll include links to those in the show notes. And then hopefully we'll do an Unpacking Scholarship episode on a paper that John and I have submitted, and hopefully it'll get published down the road. All right, so the next set is Curriculum as Discrete Tasks and Concepts. Now, I would argue that for this one, many of the computer science standards fall within this particular category. So it's not just curriculum, but it's also, well, the standards that inform curriculum. Here's a quote from page 31. Quote, the curriculum is seen as a set of tasks to be mastered and they are assumed to lead to a pre-specified end. Usually, that end has specific behavioral interpretations such as learning a new task or performing an old one better. This approach derives from training programs in business, industry, and the military." End quote. So an example of this 
And it also relates to research that I was just talking about is you do a pretest and a post. Let's find out before and after a series of discrete tasks on a specific concept or practice or whatever. The intent for this is often to learn a skill or set of practices relative to a domain. However, a criticism is that, quote, the whole of most tasks, even mechanical ones, is greater than the sum of its parts. Therefore, a simple additive set of procedures may produce the appearance of a skill well-learned, but it will not provide for a variation that is so essential in our changing world. This requires a knowledge of principles, not isolated skills or even concepts, end quote. So I really like that point. It's, yeah, great that if you want to learn a specific tasks or concepts, but you also need to consider how they work together. And that's one of the criticisms that I have for many different approaches to learning coding in particular. Yeah, you could spend an entire unit just focusing on different types of variables, or you could spend an entire unit just focusing on different control structures. But the interesting thing is not necessarily those concepts by themselves, but how they interact with each other. So while you could do a lesson on if-else statements and then do a pre and post and see if they understand it, what matters when you're programming is how do those if-else statements work with all of the other concepts in relation to the goals that you're trying to do for your program, game, or whatever. So while you could do a curriculum as discrete tasks and concepts or create standards around those things, the interesting thing is how they are all interconnected, not necessarily the decomposed abstract understandings that are isolated outside of actual application within a context that is needed. But that's my own bias. Being able to do discrete tasks and concepts for some subject areas or some things is very important. So I want to fully recognize that, hey, there is a point to this and not just completely tear it down. So the next area is called Curriculum as an Agenda for Social Reconstruction. Here's a quote from page 32, which says, quote, this view of curriculum holds that schools should provide an agenda of knowledge and values that guide students to improve society and the cultural institutions, beliefs, and activities that support it, end quote. So I unpacked a KPOR Center's culturally responsive sustaining CS framework, and any curriculum that follows that might be described as a curriculum as an agenda for social reconstruction. And I say that neutrally. Curriculum that use this approach or curriculum designers who buy into this approach are trying to improve the social order in some way. So some examples that are given are, quote, to prepare students who enter the world with a fervor to provide greater racial equity or more empathic understanding among wealthy, middle, working, and poor classes of people, end quote. It's from page 32. The intent of this kind of approach is that society or culture is not perfect and that there is always things that we can do to improve it or to build a better society. And this approach might involve a lot of communication and input from students and community members, different perspectives, and is centered around questions like what should be changed, how, and why. Now, a criticism is that, quote, it is doubtful that schools, large but not particularly influential institutions, are politically powerful enough to exert major social changes. If they would become powerful enough to do so, the desire of educators to foist their political beliefs on children and youth is tantamount to indoctrination of a very serious kind. It sparks the memory of youth in totalitarian nations who are brainwashed to support a revolution or to spy on their own families and report infractions of rules. Even in less severe cases, the question arises as to the right of educators to play deity in the dictating of social change, end quote. Now, a question that I have for you is, does this remind you of discourse from people who are against critical race theories in schools? Because it certainly did for me. So somebody who uses more equity-centered approaches might be like, yes, we really need to focus on social reconstruction. Somebody else who aligns to different images or characterizations of curriculum that is not for an agenda for social reconstruction might disagree with that. They might think school is not the place for this, 
School is a place for a series of discrete tasks and learning concepts. Or they just might think school is content or subject matter. So maybe in the equity discussions that we are having, we need to first figure out, well, how do we conceive of school and the role of school? Maybe people who are that 40% who disagree that equity should be discussed in computer science education, maybe some of them think that the reason why it should not be discussed is because the point is not to work on social reconstruction within this class. The point is to learn the subject area. I don't know though. Just trying to provide some different perspectives for the field to consider because I think it's healthy to have dialogue around different areas that you might disagree with. All right, so the last image or characterization is called curriculum as curare. I believe it's a French term, so I apologize if I completely mispronounce that. So for this approach, quote, the curriculum is the interpretation of lived experiences, end quote. It's from page 33. Now, bear with me here. This sounds a little woo-woo, but the concept is that curriculum is an autobiographical experience. So under the example section, the author writes, quote, students write autobiographical accounts that focus on striving to know who how, and why they have developed as they have. Teachers and or other students respond through written or oral comment on the writing. Dialogue ensues and creates reconceived visions of self, others, and the world. Relevant literature is introduced and the curriculum becomes the process of reconceptualization. The purpose of reconceptualization is individual emancipation from the constraints of unwarranted convention, ideology, and psychological unidimensionality. It is to explore other provinces of meaning, to envision possibilities, and to fashion new directions for oneself, others, and the world through mutual reconceptualization, end quote. Okay, I know that sounds weird, but if you think of curriculum in connection with the previous episode that discussed rhizomatic learning, which again is linked to in the show notes, these two approaches, when combined together with like different forms of assessment, like ipsative assessment, which is a reflection on your learning, if you consider this in relation to what was just discussed for curare, one of the things that I would do in the classroom is one, have a rhizomatic approach where kids could go in any direction they wanted, spend any length of time on any concept practice that was of interest to them and choose when they were done with a project to move on to a different language, platform, etc. or project. However, as part of an ipsative summative reflection at the end, I would ask students when they would turn in a project, what's something that you learned? How does this compare to what you learned previously? And how does this compare to where you want to go next? What do you want to learn next? This approach was heavily informed by these writings on Curare, this autobiographical narrative of basically how you have developed over time in relation to learning in a specific content area, and then trying to set goals for where do you want to go next. Although this really resonated with me and it was an approach that I tried to com combine with like the curriculum as experience and curriculum as agenda for social reconstruction, it does have some criticisms. So the criticism is that like, there's so much more to unpack there. Like you could honestly use professional therapists. I don't know, maybe even a historian. While this really resonates for me, this approach definitely has some criticisms. And one of the criticisms is that this is really difficult to do, especially if you're working with a bunch of kids. Again, I had a few hundred that I work with and previously I taught over a thousand when I was working in multiple schools and traveling between them. So to be able to sit down and really get to know and understand the history, the psychology of each student, it's so hard to do from an educator standpoint. But if you can approach this in a way that students are taking control of this exploration and narrative, I think it's a lot easier to do. Okay, so the last part of this section kind of elaborates on things and says that metaphors are also helpful for thinking of curriculum. So not just images and characterizations, in particular under three categories of production, growth, and journey. So here's quotes from page 34. Quote, production provides an industrial model that envisions the student as raw material to be transformed by a skilled technician who uses rigorously planned specifications, avoids waste, and carefully sees to it that raw materials are used 
activities for the purposes that best fit them. The growth metaphor perceives the teacher as an insightful gardener who carefully gets to know the unique character of the plants, students, and nurtures their own special kind of flowering. In the travel metaphor, the teacher is a tour guide who leads students through a terrain rich in knowledge, skills, ideas, appreciations, and attitudes. The tour guide knows that each traveler will respond differently to the trip because of his or her unique configuration of background, ability, interests, aptitudes, and purposes, end quote. And while each of these different metaphors or the images and characterizations might be great for some purposes, they might not be great for other purposes or other individuals or communities or groups. And the interesting thing about teaching is if you have a class of 30 kids, you might have 30 different variations in terms of how they respond to each one of these different curricular approaches. So it's very important for us to consider what approaches are we using either as a whole like in our entire CS program in a school or in a specific curriculum that we are using. Like if you were to go back and look at the lessons that I wrote for Boot Up, you might see that it aligns with some images and characterizations of curriculum more than it does with others, which might be different than if you were to go to look at a different curriculum provider. And that's okay. But it's important for us to consider how those different images and characterizations relate specifically to the different values and rationales and visions that you hold for yourself your program, and the kids that you work with. Okay, now at the end of these Unpacking Scholarship episodes, I like to share some of my lingering questions or thoughts. So the first one that I wanna share is that you've likely experienced all of these images of curriculum at some point, whether it is formally or informally, like through therapy sessions for career or through your math class or whatever. What images, characterizations, and metaphors of curricula resonated with you as a student? And then the follow-up question that I have is, well, how does that compare with as a teacher. For an example, when I was a student, I loved curriculum as discrete tasks and concepts, especially when it came to music. If I knew what I was supposed to work on, specific skill or to prepare, it was great to just absorb my mind into a flow state of just trying to improve that very specific task, like playing an instrument a specific way. But as a teacher, while I still had fun teaching music and things, I really, really valued the curare approach, curriculum as experience approach, social reconstruction, etc. So it was really interesting how over time I have shifted in terms of what I value as a student, but then also how what I have valued as a teacher has shifted over time to different curriculum. And for me, if we go a curare approach, to think of what are the catalysts that led to that shift in time, and then where do I want to go next? But to center it back onto the people that we work with, a follow-up question that I have is, how do the different images, characterizations, and metaphors serve different needs for not only you, but the people that you work with? Who's it working for and who's it not working for? Is it possible to have multiple approaches or perspectives in the same space? And I would argue, yes. But if we were to zoom back out again, my final question here is, what images, characterizations, and metaphors do some domains or fields gravitate towards over others, especially in computer science education, or even just thinking broadly in education at large? Do science teachers gravitate towards some more than arts? That would be interesting to study. But I'm a curriculum nerd, as you can probably tell. Now, I do wanna re-emphasize something that I've said in many episodes and multiple times in this one, that I do value multi-perspectivalism. I think it is important that we have many different images and characterizations of curriculum, and we can have them all in the same school. That's cool. So this is not me saying, hey, we all have to have this approach or that approach, but those are my perspectives. And you may disagree with me. And if you do, feel free to come on the show. I'm happy to chat with you, learn from you, talk about perspectives that I hadn't considered, like what images and characterizations were not mentioned by Schubert. But 
Stay tuned for another Unpacking Scholarship episode that's going to come out down the road that's also going to talk about some more things related to curriculum that we need to consider, such as the different types of curriculum, like the intended, the taught, the experienced, the embodied, the hidden, the tested, the null, etc. So we're going to talk about that in an upcoming episode. So let's get nerdy. So hopefully that's something you look forward to, or maybe you even dread it. Let me know in a review. <laughs> but until then, I just want to say I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. I hope you consider sharing this with somebody else. And I hope when you're engaging in discussions around integrated curriculum, that this provides some more nuances into not only how to integrate, but what we conceive of in terms of curriculum, as it may differ from colleagues that we're speaking with. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for another episode next week. And until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.